to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. My guest today is the great Will McFarlane, guitar player extraordinaire based in Muscle Shoals. I had Will on my podcast before, and we talked about his stint as Bonnie Raitt's guitar player and how he became a lead guitar player for the Muscle Shoals rhythm section in 1980. Then we ran out of time, so now I have Will back to resume his story, picking up in the 80s up to today. Enjoy our conversation. Will, welcome back to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Thank you so much for uh, for doing this again. I know last time we... Uh, we left it off in 1982, so <laughs> there is some unfinished business, I guess. Yeah, here we are, 2018, crazy. So, in 82, you'd been at Muscle Shoals Sound for a couple of years here in town for a couple of years, mainly doing session work, yeah. and you're also, by that time, known as, as a side guy. But then something happened and you started making your own records. What, what made you change your mind or what made you want to do that? Well, you know, I'd always written. Uh, I actually moved here on the first song Jimmy Johnson ever heard of mine. He went, that's the reason he said, I got to demo that song. He still reminds me of it. And uh, he flew me down here and I demoed my stuff and they signed me to the publishing company to Formula Music. So I was a writer for them and um, you know, I have one of those voices. I'm a singer, always have been, always sung in bands. I, I don't feel that I have one of those voices you listen to it. You know, I was always comparing myself to, I mean, not because I'm comparable, but you know, when, when there's Ray Charles out there and, you know, and Otis and people like that, I just never, you know, or even guys like Stephen Stills and, you know, that smoky kind of baritone. I'm a baritone in a tenor world, so I just never quite saw myself as a full you know world-class artist i just saw myself as a as a good solid pro you know as a guitar player i could play with you know all sorts of folks but and i just started writing things that i believed in and, and uh so somebody heard me sing a couple of them and just came to me and offered me a record deal and i actually turned it down for a year i thought i don't know if that's what i'm gonna do but then i did it you know and it was those gospel records that i so did. Right from the start came out in 82. Yeah. And uh, as you said, it's a gospel Christian album. Yeah. Yeah. L- leading up to that, you found the Lord or yeah. found him again? No, uh, just first time. He just I felt like I had a spiritual, sort of a Damascus Road experience all by myself in the woods and just couldn't look at things the same way anymore. And uh, I just felt that 
that presence, that spiritual presence, and and that was the road I took, you know. And around that same time, that didn't just happen to you, because I know like Lenny LeBlanc, yeah. Cindy Walker, different people had a, a similar experience. Have you yeah. ever thought about totally looking at it as more like of a community thing too? Absolutely, I've thought of it all the time because I was, I, I, I it happened to me. And then within the next year, Lenny and Cindy and Ronnie Eads and, you know, it, it, it just, it seemed like there was a wind blowing and everybody caught it. Nobody was proselytizing anybody else. We all got it in our own little corners of life. You know, it, it was a supernatural, I call it a divine appointment. You know, we just all got it and became, of course, fast friends. And back in those times, we were all just sharing what happened to us. And we were all the same band. Like I would play guitar for Lenny when he would have something. He played bass for me when I had something. Sometimes we'd all go out together with Cindy on piano and Lenny on bass and me on guitar. And you know what I'm saying? Uh, Joey Holder on keyboard. And, and, um, and so it was an interesting season of us all with different testimonies about our, our conversions. And, uh, and uh, you would travel some behind that music too. Yes, uh, yeah. And you mentioned uh, Ronnie Eats and I think Jerry Masters was part of some yeah, of that too. That's right. Um, so did you like, there's different people that like, after having the same experience, and I know Lenny did that for a while. It's like, hey, uh, I need to dedicate my music full time to religious music. Uh, was that ever a struggle for you to like get get called on sessions where you you know play the not necessarily yeah. the dirty songs, but like the more you know just you know absolutely. Songs. There there was a there was a time where actually I felt the judgment which is, I, I don't mean to sound critical, but you know, I would feel the judgment of people saying, oh, you're playing you know, devil music or worldly music. And I would say, you know, you're a plumber. Do you only put toilets in Christian homes and church buildings? You know, when you have your conversion and a guy calls you and wants a toilet in his house, do you, do you, and it's my job, I'm a guitar player. And I did have a little bit of that, you know, that thing in there where you know, every now and then a song would be just absolutely like, there were a couple of Clarence Carter songs that were pretty edgy in that direction that I, I played on, you know, but I would realize, you know, all these people going to church, working at Reynolds Aluminum, making Miller beer cans for a living, you know, and I was just playing the guitar and loving it. These were my friends and there was a struggle, but I didn't really feel it as much internally. I think I was made to feel it. And so I was double-minded at times. I wasn't sure whether, you know, there were tours I turned down because I, you know, I didn't think I needed to go out on the road uh, with a bunch of guys that were just not living like I was. And, yeah, and that record didn't remain a one-off. You did half a dozen yeah, Christian did. albums over yeah. the years. Uh, the second one was called A Colony of Heaven in 84. Yeah. and. Uh, Part of, you know, why I'm doing the podcast is I want to kind of try to capture the oral history of Muscle Shoals. That's great. Unfortunately, some people I can't talk to anymore because they passed away. And I know one of your main collaborators and friends was Joey Holder. I never got to meet him because he passed away before I came here. But I wondered if you could share maybe a few 
thoughts about how a you know collabor collaborative musician person he was. Well, Joey, when I met Joey, he was kind of practically a teenager, I think. You know, he's much younger than I was, and uh, but he had that feel. But but he didn't. I, I loved his feel when I first met him. And uh, I had a couple of things I had to do, so I went and asked him if he'd come play with me. And I realized that Joey had mostly just sort of had a rock and roll influence, uh, you know. And so I started giving him records of piano players that had really influenced me. You know, I gave him a Joe Sample record, for example, you know, and I gave him uh, just, you know, turned him on to the band and uh, all these different things. And he would stay up late at night and just. And he just got great. He got that New Orleans. I gave him some Dr. John and uh, some Alan Toussaint and uh, some Professor Longhair because I thought he needed that, you know, he needed that, that New Orleans rumba thing. And, it, and he just got it down great. I mean, we played with Donna Jean, with Joey. If you listen to her record, there's some great Joey Holder piano player. Some of the best he ever did. And I had Donna Jean and David McKay on yeah. the podcast too and they talked some about that and yes. maybe you can talk about that here in a minute too because you also contributed yeah. songs yeah. to it yeah. um so and another one was at uh, cherry wallace yes who not only he also co-produced yeah. i think that second album yeah he produced he co-produced the first two and um Jerry was such a musical guy. Jerry just dripped music. He could walk out on the floor, cut a track on drums, bass, keyboard, or guitar. Just totally studio quality. But he was a writer, you know, he wrote big hits and had mailbox money coming in back when that existed. And uh, he was, when he just sat behind the glass, he just was a musical guy. He let things happen, he had great ideas, he orchestrated things well. Of course, he produced, I think, three or four of the first Forrester Sisters records that I played on. Jerry produced that, Jerry and Terry Skinner. Terry Skinner. And uh, so I worked with them all the time. Jerry was a fast friend, as of course I just helped oversee his memorial here in town, which was heartbreaking. And uh, that was just a few months ago. Uh, just a couple of months ago. You know, it's been a really tough year, and it, you know, a lot of, we've lost a lot of, a lot of the good ones here this year. And, and so, uh, yeah, Jerry Wallace was a dear, very close friend, and we were in the studio. We were in headphones together so much. Um, we worked out at East Avalon a ton, and I'm really glad to see that going again. But, um, but we worked at Sound, too, and we did Colony of Heaven up in Nashville. But we mixed it down here at Muscle Shoals Sound. Yeah. And uh, they just gave me free studio time up there. So, you know, the record label had a studio, so, so we took them up on it because it kept the budget nothing, you know. Yeah. The third al album was called Only the Heart in 87. And I did that with just me and Joey. Uh, we programmed all the drums. That was that late, that mid to late 80s thing, you know, where you, you know, you program the drums and everything. But I brought in Steve Nathan and Gary Baker, and we had, you know, great players on it, and I played all the guitars. And, Joey. and I guess the follow-up in 91 was kind of the same template. Yes. Here to voice, mainly yes. you and Joey. And it was main, yes. I think I went over to Lenny's for some of that, though, and, uh, and Lenny really helped with that. Lenny was great. But then after that, you did probably your most rootsy solo album, yeah. X to the Root, which came out, on, I believe, on a Malico it did. subsidiary. It did. It came out, uh, 
Wolf came to me and he said, I, I see what you're doing here and we've got this subsidiary and what if we did a record with you and gave me a budget and I cut that record with Roger, David, Clayton, Jimmy Johnson and me. And uh, a matter of fact, I believe it was one of Roger's last full projects because it was 99. And, uh, and I'd just written a bunch of stuff that were just roots, roots gospel sort of, you know. And, uh, and uh, I, I still get a lot of people that say that that, that record really just helped them a lot, you know. They, they needed to hear something that felt like what they like, but said something that would uh, have words of peace. So. Yeah. And then the, the last Will McFarlane solo album to date is called For the Peoples yeah. in, 80, uh, in 2005. Yeah, I sat down with Tom Rohde, no charts, no nothing. We just started playing this guitar, this little acoustic, and just playing in percussion. He would just start playing percussion. I'd just start playing. I didn't know where I was going with it. And, but I went back and added. I wish I just kept at that. Tom Rohde was so mystical, you know, as a, he's the one who actually got me into big shoes. He's the one who called me, uh, he was playing up there and uh, we didn't make our first gig before he passed. Yeah, and was, we'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute too because that's probably your most current chapter. Yes. Um, but you mentioned Donna Jean earlier and around the same time they moved here, you and Janet, your wife, befriended them and became really close yeah. friends. Uh, and then eventually crossed over to being a mu musical relationship too. So how did that come about? And can you tell me a little bit about you know, how that kind of felt? Well, you know, it's funny. Janet and I went to a funeral in Gogi. Uh, Donna's sister, Donna Jean's sister was there. And when Janet met her, she said, oh, I met your sister because Janet, my wife, used to actually, I could say, did artwork for the Grateful Dead and dated Phil Lesh. Phil Lesh went to her parents' house to meet her parents, you know, like that kind of thing. So Janet had this Grateful Dead connection. And, and so Janet had said to Gogi, I've met your sister and haven't seen her in 35 years, but whatever or whatever. And Donna just cold called Janet one day and said, do we know each other? And they just talked for hours on the phone and they f flew here just to meet us. Just, and so David and Janet, and I spent about three days together, just almost all day, every day. They flew back and gave notice to everybody and moved here. And we literally, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say, we were, in, we were with each other at one or the other's houses every day for like six months. I mean, crazy connection. We were at each other's house, just telling our stories and comparing notes and becoming friends. And, and they're just life friends to us. And, and what happened in 95 was Jerry Garcia died. And it was almost as if the dead nation out there Grateful Dead Nation <laughs> uh, lost dad and they wondered where mom was and she'd been out of that loop for a while so we started going back out doing concerts like Jerry, Jerry Fest tribute concerts, flew to San Francisco and, uh, and doing a bunch of the dead songs that, that, that Donna liked and some of the Jerry Garcia band stuff that was sort of gospel tinted, you know, there's a lot of that in there in yeah. the dead and we started going out and doing that and eventually just did a record here and then toured behind it for a couple of years. That must sound. Right? Yes, we did. Toured behind it for a couple of years. And you wrote some on it too, didn't you? I did. So did Jerry Wallace. And the original, t the initial tour was Jerry Wallace, Joey Holder, and me and Mike Caputi and Dave and Donna. Yeah. 
and we went out and played New York and all these festivals and gathering of the tribes and the Poconos and <clears throat> went out to Maritime, you know, in San Francisco. And yeah, and then she cut another one of your songs that you wrote by yourself on a follow-up album and you played on her most recent album. So yeah, that's we, been a relationship that's been... Yeah. And I got to play on David's new record too, you know, on a track there. So we're, we, we're life friends. It's just the way it is. And, uh, and it's always our pleasure to make a little music together. But then Muscle Shoals was, was behind you for a little while. It was, you know, it just, there were several, there were several things working on us like, but uh, Muscle Shoals sound just stopped working. I mean, it was almost as if, you know, we just had this, you know, it went on eBay for heaven's sakes, you know. Uh, but uh, I had some friends of mine up in North Carolina that just really said, come on up here, you need a break, you, you, you know, we'll pay you, and come on up here. And, and we did, we just, I, I never thought I'd ever leave Muscle Shoals. And we went to North Carolina. And, um, and the situation up there wasn't what I expected. And I realized that I wasn't happy professionally up there. I have great friends in North Carolina. Of course, our daughters, I'm driving up there this week, you know, for Thanksgiving. Our daughter and, and, and her family live up there. But um, I just wasn't as happy. I just wasn't as musically, even though I have great musical friends. That was my best part of it, was getting outside the, you know, the church walls and playing some music. And How long did you live up there? Ten, over 10 years. And in 2008, you're living up there, and Jimmy Johnson calls you. He did. That was amazing. As a matter of fact, you know, somebody texted me from down here and said, congratulations. And I was like, for what? You know, what did I do? And, and I really didn't get back to him. I, I, I didn't know if they meant it or, you know, what. And he said something about, and he just types H-O-F. <laughs> and I'm like... Yeah, you know, I thought it was funny. Like, yeah, I'm in the Hall of Fame. And Jimmy called me and he said, you know, Will, we just got called to be in the Musicians Hall of Fame. And, uh, and I told the guy, well, we couldn't have done it without our friends. And the guy goes, well, who are, who are your friends? And he said, well, you know, Pete Carr and Spooner and Clayton Ivey and Randy McCormick. And Will McFarland was here 20 years. I think the guy said, who's he, you know, or whatever. And Jimmy goes, you know, he played with Bonnie Raitt or whatever. And, and he goes, that's great with us. So, so it's the four of you and five of your friends. And so Jimmy called me and he, he told me that story. And he said, we'd, we'd like you to go in. I mean, it's terrifically humbling to, to think that I was included in, in that induction. And uh, it was amazing, you know, to go to this place where they're inducting Booker T and the MGs, icons. And, uh, the crickets, and the crickets Memphis and horns. Al Cooper and, you know, I think Buddy Killen went in then too. And the first question actually is funny. I turned to him and I, I almost felt guilty. I thought, I'm going into a Musician's Hall of Fame. I said, is Reggie in it? And he goes, oh yeah, he went in last year. I said, oh, okay. If, uh, you know, if Reggie's, I couldn't imagine going into a Hall of Fame before Reggie, <laughs> you know? And so... Uh, you know, we went to Nashville. Actually, that my father came to that, and that was maybe the third time my father had ever seen me play the guitar. And less significantly, we met that night. We certainly did, and that was wonderful. You just ran up beside me and said, by the way, I really love your music, and it was just a great meeting. And, of course, now I can't imagine 
life without you. I still got your business card somewhere. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. yeah, that's great that Janet at that time actually was, you know, responsible enough to carry my business cards around with me. Yeah. So uh, did that contribute to you wanting to move back down here? Uh, I'd wanted to move down here, but I was sort of stuck up there. You know, 2008 was also the crash, and I had all my life savings, believe it or not, was in a 401k and AIG, and it just crashed. It went from, you know, it just went down to nothing, and I cashed it out and moved back here with nothing. You know, just, you know, it was a sad, but I was so happy to be back, and I just moved back under the radar, rented a little apartment out in Killen, and the documentary came out. And Jimmy had tried to get me in the documentary, and all the guys had said, you know, let's get Will, you know, I'd love to do an interview with you, but finally they just, they hit the wall. It was like, we have 400 hours of this. We're going to start editing this crazy. And when the documentary came out, all of a sudden, it's just amazing for me personally, whatever anybody wants to think about that documentary, who it focused on, who it didn't, who it left, whatever. All I know is that as soon as it came out, people started going, well, let's go to Muscle Shoals instead of Nashville maybe. And, and so they'd call fame and fame would call me because you know, I would save, you know, I, I'm the kind of guy who get with an artist and, and, and do some pre-production, number chart it and get it out so that David, the way David and Clayton and Spooner read and just make it easy on everybody. I just grease the wheels, you know, so that the tracks go smoothly. And I just started working weekly. I think at one point, John Gifford over there at Fame told me that I was the most recorded musician at Fame for about a two year period. Uh, at one point I had 10 days off in a four month period where I didn't play music. So it was just a powerful, wonderful sort of surge of, of musicians coming to this town. My friends started calling me from Dallas and New York and LA and saying, hey man, we want a day here and a day there. And so I was at the Nut House or Fame on a weekly basis. It was a wonderful season. Still is, actually. It's a little slower. Yeah, right and on the other hand, it also allowed us or you guys to actually go places, too. It's not oh, just yeah. musicians coming here, but it's also interest. We got to go to Pareto Soul Festival in Italy and represent the Muscle Shoals sound over there. Or Lincoln Center. Right. You. You've been wonderful there. I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed Peretta, and, and that was great, our hookup with you. And, and just the rest of the world started hearing about Muscle Shoals again, going, well, let's get them here. And so Lincoln Center was wonderful, and, and Peretta was great. And we've done, you know, taken the 14, 15, 16, 18-piece bands, you yeah. know, to down to Birmingham and up to Nashville. And There's going to be another one of these next year. Down to South by Southwest. We went down there for the movie... Uh, uh, debut and did a concert down there as well and and we just that yeah, was a great just great fun you know yeah are you saying Peretta next year <laughs> no we're gonna go somewhere else <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> I'll talk to you off uh, off air off mine. <laughs> that's great that's great <laughs> okay kind of few uh, of the more recent um, project you've been involved with let's start with Blues Council first because I that's like you did that right around the time we actually became friendly. How, what's that band and how did that come about? That band is honestly more of a bunch of friends who've known each other for 35 years. There are people in the band who've been making music together for over 40 years. I've been making music with Rick Kua, the bass player who played in the Outlaws. He's, he's from upstate New York, 
played with Phil Keggy, a bunch of people, a very, very talented bass player, and a great guy. And we all joke, he's the, probably the nicest man I've ever met in my life. You know, he's probably top 10 in the world. I'd like to be in the top million, maybe, but Rick's a great guy. And uh, I played on his first record, his first solo record in 80 or 81. And um, Jimmy Hall did too. I met Jimmy Hall playing on Rick Kuma's first record. And so that goes way, that goes back. And we started doing a festival in Buffalo, New York. And we were like the house band and we hosted a jam so that all the musicians at the festival came and the jam became one of the coolest things at this festival. It was a late night, you know, it went 11 to two or whatever. And we met all these musicians and, and the band all started playing together, but it was our one gig a year. And then every now and then people would get us for one other gig, you know, we'd have to fly by the seat of our pants and what do we do? And somewhere about, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago, we thought, well, let's just do a CD of all the stuff we've been doing all these years. And we did a Blues Council CD. So we've just finished our, our we're working on our third one, I guess, our fourth one. And we're all just old friends. We probably only do a maximum of four or five shows a year, but we make music about every three years together. We go do a CD and it's, just a lot of fun. We're all just life friends is what that is. Yeah. And so friends on one hand and then family on the other hand. Now, you got two sons, Rob and Jamie, who are both musicians in their own right. Right. And Joey Holder's son, who's kind of almost like a son to yes. you in many ways, uh, is a great drummer. And you got to play with them how does it feel to kind of pass it on uh, that's I, I wish every man I know could stand shoulder to shoulder with with one of their kids and do something that they love at a high level Jamie's a wonderful bass player I mean he can you know he's a session player here and he could cut anything and play with anybody here in town and uh, and he and Rob had the band local Saints which was I just think a great band you know they were wonderful and Justin Holder Joey Holder's son. I, I was in the waiting room when Kathy was giving birth out there. I'm one of the first people who ever looked through the glass and saw Justin. I may be, if I'm not the first guy who ever gave him a paying gig, I'm, I'm the first guy I ever paid him real money. <laughs> you know, and he was in bands with my sons and David's son, one of their first bands when they were 11 and 12 years old was with Kinsman McKay. And Justin Holder and, and Rob were in a band together when they were 11 and 12 and 13. And so that next generation, and then Jamie's almost another generation. Jamie's, you know, in his 40s, Rob's in his 30s. And, and uh, I started touring with taking Jamie with me. It's great to have a bass player in the family. And we're all session guys, you know, and so you're tastefully elegant. You know what to leave out and you're, you're on your best behavior. Fathers and sons, we realize that we all had this deep need to play live to get stuff out of our system to try out new things and you know where we could overplay tastelessly I jokingly say and so we keep a steady gig going uh, uh, weekly with uh, my dear guitar slinging buddy Kelvin Holly who I love like a brother as well and we called it Fathers and Sons it's that old Muddy Waters you know album where he it was muddy and the, you know, Stones and Clapton and stuff like that. And it, for some reason, we just realized that's what we were. We were fathers and sons. And we jokingly say in mom and them, you know, because Janet sings with us, the mother sings with us. Yeah, that's another thing I wanted to ask you about. You also, you know, been doing like kind of solo acoustic gigs. And then Janet started joining you. Yes. And uh, 
so you you also make music with your wife how does that feel is this something you've always done or is this something more no. recent development? you know it's funny we used to joke i i didn't realize how much janet actually probably i hate to use the word resent but maybe all of our marriage had always wanted to make music with me but every band i was ever in where there was a husband and wife or there was a relationship with a woman and a guy in the band it never went well it always just came unglued, I don't know why, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, I'm not anybody's judge, but all of my personal experience. And I thought, let's keep our love and our marriage separate from our professional thing, you know what I mean? And so we didn't sing together for years, and while I was up in North Carolina, one of my buddies' wives wanted to sing with him. And he thought, well, I don't think she can cut it on her own, and he invited Janet to sing. And I was in the band, so he sort of thrust Janet singing on me, but after that it just took. And actually what's really great is when just Janet and I sit down and sing, we'll sing You Send Me or something, people come up afterwards and go, it is so cool to see a husband and wife that seem like they actually like each other. You know what I mean? It's apparently a very encouraging thing that we do, and Janet and I are getting better. She's getting better and better and better and better. We've been doing it now for, gosh, 10 years, probably eight or 10 years. And you mentioned fathers and sons. That's kind of a combination of all of that. A couple of years ago, uh, you recorded a Christmas album called Muscle Shoals to Mistletoe, which is pretty much standards in a new dress. And the new dress is kind of the Muscle Shoals sound, making it funky and so right. forth. Uh, tell me a little bit about that project. You know, that project really started with Jamie. My son came to me and said, you know, Pop, He's such an entrepreneurial thinker, you know, and he goes, there's never been a, just a true Christmas record out of the Shoals. And I went, wow, you know, I, I was a little, my inertia had set in, I was a little settled, you know, and just kind of, like you've mentioned all of these bands, at this point in all of our lives, we have so many irons in the fire, you almost don't even know if you can add another one, you know? But it started to ring, and one day he came over to my house, and we thin, said, well, let's do stuff, just standard carols. But let's, you know, when you listen to Christmas records, they either try to get jazzy and hip, or they become like Mannheim Steamroller, which is great, I mean, I, or they become high church or whatever. I said, let's cut it like we're cutting a Johnny Taylor record. Let's just cut these great fields. Like, I got David Hood on What Child Is This? To he basically plays the Respect Yourself bass line. We almost feels like Respect Yourself. Clayton and David and Jimmy Johnson and I cut that. You know, uh, we uh, cut, we got the Beehive Queen in on Joy to the World and cut Joy to the World with almost the same rhythm guitar part as Mustang Sally. You know, we just tipped our hat to these Muscle Shoals grooves. We did Oh Holy Night Like I've Been Loving You Too Long, or Dreams to Remember, you know, just old, classic Muscle Shoals, Memphis R&B, and we put the horns on it. We've got the Muscle Shoals horns on it. And, and then we've also got, you know, Brad and Ken on it as well. And so, and Marie and Cindy, Cindy sings great. Clayton played on it. And we just did a Muscle Shoals. We've got Donnie Fritz on it. He's wonderful. John Paul White sings on it. And it's a father's and son's record I sing. Kelvin does a little. And we, Kelvin and I play guitar on it. And Jamie plays bass on, on most of it, except for David Hood's stuff. And, and uh, we just did a Muscle Shoals Christmas album. It's called Muscle Shoals to Mistletoe. Donnie Fritz starts it. He goes, from Muscle Shoals to Mistletoe, Merry Christmas, y'all. <laughs> I love how the record starts with Donnie just welcoming everybody. And, and we love that record. And uh, people say to me, when it's on in the background of their Christmas parties, everybody wants one. 
you know, so I encourage, I mean, that's a shameless plug, but, you know, they make great stocking stuffers. It's called Muscle Shoals to Mistletoe. Yeah, and that almost brings us to today, but earlier you mentioned your good friend who passed away, Tom Rohde. Tom Rohde, yeah. And a band called Big Shoes, which started out as a Little Feet tribute band. Can you tell me a little bit about Tom's, you know, getting you the gig and then kind of how it originated? Well, you know, Tom was beloved. Tom felt as good as anybody who ever played percussion. He played on great records. You know, James Taylor, Aretha, he was out, he was doing the Christmas thing with Ricky Skaggs when he passed. Uh, just amazing, wonderful guy. Just a smile that everybody misses still. And, uh... There's sort of a movement in Nashville. All this, a lot of the session guys, you know, are doing tribute bands up there. They're just to get outside. Again, I feel it's like a father's and son's thing. You want to just get out and play some blues or you know some R&B and experiment with stuff that you can't do on a, you know, on a record. Maybe. And I mean, that Little Feet catalog. Tell me about it. I mean, that's oh. one of the best catalog oh. as far as grooves. Oh, there's. Every Little Feet, we used to tour together, you know, as a matter of fact, back in the 70s, we were on, Bonnie Raitt and Little Feet toured together all the time, and Lowell invited me out for encores. I've walked out on stage and plugged into Lowell's rig through a Y cable and done sailing shoes with him. And when Lowell passed, uh, Billy Payne called me on the phone and said, Lowell always liked you, we'd like you to be part of the house band. So I was part of the house band rhythm section with Little Feet for Lowell George's memorial at the Forum with the Tower Power Horns, and we backed up Bonnie Ray and Linda Ronstadt and Nicolette Larson and Craig Fuller and Jackson Brown. And I mean, it was a, a amazing night. Of course, it was heartbreaking. We lost Lowell, but it was still one of those nights where you could quit and say, you know, I used to be in the music business. That was a gig I played. And so I loved Little Feet. Uh, Lowell's slide playing is probably the most influential. Even though I was in Bonnie's band all those years, the way Lowell orchestrated just touched my heart. Just those... Just one note would just be exactly what the song needed, and his simplicity, but his perfection was amazing to me. And so I'm very influenced by him. And Tom knew that because we'd known each other for years. And and up in Nashville, unbeknownst to me, Andy Peak, fine fine drummer, was putting together this band, and and it was all great journeyman Nashville pros that loved Little Feet. And uh, none of them quite had the Lowell thing. And Tom Rohde said to him one day, boy, there's this friend of mine down in Muscle Shoals that if he'd drive up here, he'd be killer. So just one night for the fun of it, I drove up to Nashville and went to a rehearsal. It was an instant contact. You know, it was one of those times, as soon as we all played together, the, group, the pocket just went through the floor and you know, we kicked into whatever, two trains running and, and I already knew all the slide parts and you know, and, and Fat Man in the Bathtub, and I already knew all the slide parts, and you know, we just started initially to see how we all felt, and it was an instant connection. We didn't even have a name yet. We all, what are we gonna call ourselves? And the idea, you know, Little Feet, but Big Shoes to Fill, Big Shoes became the name. I think it's a great name for a Little Feet tribute band. And we, our initial gigs basically was waiting for Columbus. You know, we just went out on stage and just, you know, note for note practically, not, you know, no for no, but basically like that. And at certain gigs, you had like horn section, oh, yeah. background, background singers, different yeah. guests before you kind of found another singer. So he went through different iterations. Yeah. yeah. And also, 
and you still do the little feed songbook, but you started adding original material. Uh, I guess first live, but then also you went into the studio. And actually, I got um, two iterations of like a first record here. One was called Soul Music, yeah, and the other one was called Choose Blues. Yeah. Where it kind of started. I guess started that, and they kind of. I hope I don't do anybody wrong when I say they kind of sailed under the radar a little bit but yes, this most current album which is called Step On It has been getting great reviews it gets five star reviews and every downbeat themselves nominated us for Blues Band of the Year we actually got some votes I think we came in third or fourth or I, I know top half I think but I mean we were in there with Greg Ullman and Joe Bonamassa Greg I believe won it but but to just the honor of being nominated by a magazine uh, with such, you know, a cool rep as Downbeat is, you know, we've read Downbeat all our lives and, and we're getting five star reviews and everybody that comes to see, see us just has a great time. And we, it's about half and half. We do kick off uh, with an, you know, our, an original set and then we come back and just jump right into a little feet set and then we'll maybe do a couple more of ours and, and uh, and then some more Little Feet. And sometimes, like, Sean Murphy joins oh, you, and yeah. she was in Little Feet for a long time, different people who oh, just yeah. did a show with Leroy Purnell, one with Jimmy Hall. Yeah, great. Um, they always, and they love her, you know, they just have a great time up there. Sean's incredible. She brings the house down. All of them do. Jimmy Hall just brought the house down. I mean, I don't know if there's a live singer with more energy on stage yeah. than Jimmy Hall. He He is amazing and uh, just brings us all up a notch and Leroy amazing and his slide playing of course you know uh, is incredible immaculate and it was cool because he's got the Bonnie Lowell thing too you know and the two of us he just kept he, he was wiggling his fingers at me come on let's go and we were trading slide two two slide players can be mayhem you know <laughs> but uh but we you know we're both not real pitchy you know we both landed pretty well and thoroughly enjoyed it. We love it when guests come and sit in with us. It's just great fun. And, uh, you know, they're all great players in that band, but somebody I just want to mention real quick is Mark T. Jordan for a lot of reasons. First of all, I mean, he played on Tupelo, honey. I mean, <laughs> yeah. If that's all he ever if did. If that's all you ever need to say. Yeah, right. But uh, but also, he was in Bonnie Raitt's band, not with you, but at different points yes so you share some of the same history in a way uh how Very is it much. playing with him because i had him on the podcast before too and he's he was great well mark jordan first of all is one of the most delightful people i've ever known we've been friends literally for 45 years and this is the first band we've ever played together and first time we've ever played together 45 years you know after we met or 40 years after we met we finally ended up in a band together i remember when the cassette of his demo of Walk Out the Front Door came in when we were looking for songs for Home, uh, home Plate, yeah. And so I actually played on Mark Jordan's songs, Two Lives on Sweet Forgiveness and Walk Out the Front Door on Home Plate. I played on Mark Jordan's songs on Bonnie Raitt records he didn't even, that he didn't play on. And then he joined Bonnie's band for Road Tested. Um, and of course he was, he's played with Jackson and Taj and Lyle yeah. and, and one of those songs you ended up recutting on that last that's right uh, big shoes record. we just did walk out the front door our own way uh and i love our version of it i think it's a smoking track you know 
Yeah, Mark's super gifted. And when we do those little fetish breakdowns in the middle of songs, who knows where Mark's going to go? I always, like, we'll just look at each other at one point in the middle of every one of them and go, what would it be like to have that much music in your head? Yeah. You know, he's just a, a, a magnificent musician, great field player, but tons of information. Yeah, and you need that because that, that you know, Billy Payne oh, yeah. thing, you yeah. know, if you don't have that, it's, yeah. it falls flat. Yeah, it does. And, and Mark holds his own out there for sure, you know. And he, he breaks into some wonderful, wonderful, just goes in directions. You go, wow, how's he going to get out of that one? And then he somehow pulls it back out and comes back in. We're back in the tripe face boogie or whatever. And, and, uh, and I get to play above the fretboard, you know. Yeah. So, uh, without devaluing any of your other, you know, musical things, um, it's fair to say you're best known as a guitar player. Yes. I would say. Absolutely. Um, but and we talked about that extensively. We talked about you, the artist. One thing we haven't talked about as much is your songwriting. We kind of touched on it. We mentioned the Amarillo song early on. Yeah. And then the song that kind of opened your door to Muscle Shoals in a certain degree, the one that, that uh, Jimmy Johnson loved and wanted you to demo early on. Yeah. So obviously you started fairly early on writing songs, but how do you perceive yourself? Like obviously you're the guitar player, but like as far as, you know, kind of parts of your musical being or, or, or how much that dedication or time does the songwriting kind of consume in your life? I admit, I, I, I sort of wait for inspiration. Some people set aside, you know, every Tuesday or whatever. I've done that and been very successful with it. I've written a couple of songs lately with Huck, Rick Huckabee and Big Shoes that I really like. I've written a couple of songs where Jamie and Rob, my sons and I, got together and said, let's write. What are we thinking about? What's going on? And we wrote Ain't Nobody Loves You Like Me, which is on the new Big Shoes record as well. And... Uh, it's one of those songs where by the end of the song, everybody in the audience is singing along with me. So I feel that it's a good song. I'd love to get somebody like Dilbert or somebody to cut it. And I'm listening to my own voice. I'm trying to find my own singing voice here, at, you know, at the, at, at, in these days. Uh, I, I'm fe I, I feel like I just wrote whatever came to my mind, but not necessarily how I solo the best. And I'm trying to write some stuff that I feel I, I it would give my guitar playing more. Like my records aren't really guitar records. Yeah, but then again, I mean, the Muscle Shoals thing, or really the session player thing, is serve the song, rather than right. find the showcase for the individual right. part. Exactly. So I'm not surprised that that's where you're at. No, that's, that, that, that's, it's my default mechanism is the song wins. And so that's how I've been, but I've been writing lately some real soulful stuff and really enjoying it. Whenever I do it live, everybody's like, you got to cut that or somebody you need to pitch that to, you know, whatever, Kebmo or what, you know, I mean, just bluesy little things. And I still feel that I have a project under my wings, you know, that I, I have a, a solo artist project under my wings. And I'd love to do something with uh, Fathers and Sons. I'd love to cut again, cut with Fathers and Sons. And But I would also like to do a record with just my friends that I've made music with over the years, you know. I'd like David on a um, good grief. What would my life be if I hadn't met David Hood? Uh, I've never cut a track with David that didn't feel great. 
uh, Clayton Ivey. And, you know, these are my friends. These are the guys that I've made the most music with over the last 35 years. And, and, uh, and I, I feel that I've got another project like that where I want to call in, you know, Milton for a couple of tracks. And of course, I want my son Jamie to play on a bunch of it. And, and just do a record, sit there and listen. Boy, this, this, I'd like to hear how this rhythm section sounds with and mix them all up and how this, these guys would sound with with this track and that. And I think I have another, I think I have a project under my wings. And, uh, but it's funny, at this point, I don't want to produce it myself. I want somebody objectively to sit on the other side of the glass and go, that was a great vocal will, as opposed to me going, that sucked, or whatever. You know, I can't be objective anymore. I'm looking for that voice. And, and so I, 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 I've been writing a lot lately and feel that I, I'm, uh, it's just a matter of time before I actually do a lot of things for barter. I'll play guitar, say, don't pay me for this. Give me an hour of time, you know, or two hours of time. And you know what I'm saying? So yeah. I'm storing up yeah. time <laughs> in studios. And, uh, and so I'm figuring I could come in, you know, pretty frugally here. And, um, and my buddies are great, you know, they're just, uh, um, you know, they'll work with me on it. And I just, I feel that in the next several months, somehow I'm going to do something. Yeah, I hope so. Um, lyrically, what are some of your inspirations? Do you still write spiritual, or is more like, you know, what you would expect from an R&B rock yeah. type of guy? I think more these days, as opposed to sort of hitting people over the head with loaves and fishes, that I, and I don't say that disparagingly, truly. I just feel that I want to write positive stuff that people can listen to that identifies a human condition, whatever, angst or love lost or, or the need for love, whatever, and identify it and, and very simply capture it in a hook. You know, like I think a lot of writers, you know, will say something and somebody will say, oh, you know, all of a sudden somebody will say something and go, that's a song. You know, how many times has that happened to you? I'm sure, you know, somebody yeah. says something. There just might be a line somewhere yeah. in the ether. Yeah. Yeah, and you go, oh, that, that's, a, that's a lyric. And so I try to remember those now. I used to not, I used to think I could remember them. I'd be, wake up in the middle of the night and have a great, the greatest song idea of my life and wake up in the morning and, and say it 12 times to myself, fall back asleep and not even remember it in the morning. So now with iPhones, you know, I'll just real quickly write down the sentence that I just heard and then put one, two minor, one over three, four, or something like that, you know, very quickly behind it to try to remember what melody I... Yeah, it's like you kind of collecting these credits with your friends, the bordering thing. It's almost the same with songs. It's like you're collecting bits and pieces and then maybe this turns into that or this you can combine with that. Exactly. It's kind of... Exactly. Yeah. As a matter of fact, this last one, one of the last songs I wrote, I wrote with Rick Huckabee and I just showed up at his house. I said, yeah, I sort of have this. And I was stuck. I had two verses, a I had three verses in a chorus, but I, I felt it didn't, there was a line or two that I just wasn't landing on. There were a couple of words in the chorus. I had most of it, probably had 80%, 90% of the song written, but I needed to say it out loud. I needed to process it with another writer. And all of a sudden he just almost immediately went, said the sentence we went that's it and the song exploded and we were done in 30 minutes you know with this song and every time I do the song people go oh I love that you know whatever so 
so I think I'm onto something. I'm really enjoying the co-write thing these days because I think just like cutting tracks, you know, I could go in, program a drum thing, play the guitar, play the bass, maybe do a organ pad and some background vocals with it and make a, a, a good demo, really. But when you're in the floor with three or four other guys, the converse, wow, I, wow, I never would have thought of that. that. That reminds me of this. And as opposed to just thinking about what I want to do I'm, I'm having a conversation with somebody else musically, and it's eminently more interesting to me. So I love cutting tracks with four guys on the floor, you know? Yeah. And, and I might lay out in a way that I, my part might be changed dramatically because the drummer's got, he's feeling 16s on the hi-hat, and I was doing a 16s on, all of a sudden now I'm just doing yeah, you, you distribute some of that among right. whoever's on the floor. And so, you know what it's like when everybody's listening on the floor and it just, you know, Roger Hawkins once said to me, good players are good listeners. And, and they're not just listening and then coming with an idea. They're listening in the now. They're listening. They're having a conversation right now. And, uh, and I love that. And so I've start, I, I, but I would sit at home and write songs myself and then bring it to the crowd as opposed to now enjoying sort of a conversation with another writer. I've come, I, I've written songs that I've, of course, you know, I've written songs that I, I never would have written by myself. Or like with Steph Brown, you know. She, uh, she's gotten a lot of songwriters together in this town with Mark Narmore and, you know, Mitch Mann and Cindy Walker. And we've all ended up in a room with her writing songs, Sandy Carroll, and next thing you know, they're, they're on CDs. And so I like that. I, I'm starting to really enjoy the co-write. Yeah. So we can talk about, you know, songwriting. We could also let the music do the talking. Would you mind? Ah. Because I, I like, you know, I, part of the podcast is like, I, I would love for some people just to not only, you know, hear your story, but also kind of get animated to check out the music. And that's like the best way to do that. Say, Hey, listeners out there, this is Will McFarland. Uh, Look how great it is. And then go out and get the record or, or give you even more incentive to, to make a new one. I appreciate that. That's a very complimentary. Anna. Here's the one I wrote with my sons. What do you think? to the 
right Look all day long Even into the night You're gonna see Ain't nobody loved you like me mm -hmm. Ah, solo time It's only natural Have a question or two Come run through your mind But baby, I guarantee No matter what you do It won't take you too long to find Cause you can look to the left Look to the right I'll search all day long Even into the night You're gonna see love that one and uh, you uh, when you do your shows with Janet it's she singing the harmony on totally. it's one of those moments you mentioned yes. like yeah. you know where it's like I didn't even think you wrote it with anybody uh, I thought well that's just a love song to your wife yeah. but then again it's their mother so <laughs> right. it's funny we were sitting around talking our boys and we were telling love story how's everybody doing and there's a war story or two you know we're, we're all in the throes of it they're all married and at one point somebody said yeah but ain't nobody loves them like us and they do speak real English as well too you know what I mean but that's such a lyric we went that's the song we're gonna write right now and we just started ain't nobody loves you like me I mean it just was so we had that immediately it needs to feel like that <laughs> Ain't nobody loves you like me. And so that was the first moment we had of that. We said, so how are we going to write this? You woke me. I don't know how we came up with you woke me last night, but that's how we came. And uh, the song I wrote with Huck, if you, you know, we've got time for one more. Absolutely. Uh, it, 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 we were just so slow. It was, it was like we went...
That's what I get for loving you. That's what I get for thinking about you night and day. Never had anything to go this way. And I'm most surprised to see you feel the same way for me. I got a reason for this happy face. Everything falling into place. My best dreams are coming true. That's what I get for loving you. I said, That's what I get for loving you. Yeah, so you just wrote that? I just wrote that with Huck. That's one of the ones I came in with most of it done and a couple of lines in there. I don't remember which ones I was stuck on, but Huck's in there. And uh, so I love that one. I love, I'm most surprised to see. <laughs> but see, that's the one I thought, God, wouldn't Kev Mo kill that? I mean, that's just me thinking out loud. Yeah, and it's another one with just like a good groove. Yeah, with a little, little bottleneck, just real underproduced, you know, and just acoustically based even, you know, just underproduced, and but put a little slide on it and some, you know, you know, little muscle shoals in it, yeah. you know. just where I live, you know, yeah. <laughs> that kind of Reggie Young, Cornell Dupree, Bobby Womack, Curtis Mayfield, those kind of rhythm players, Steve Crawford, you know, I just, yeah. you know, that's, those are the guys, because I never thought of myself as a lead guitar player, I'm not a guitar god, you know, I'm not like, you know, a real heavy thrasher, but I mean, I can take solos, but I've been in bands where I play rhythm all night long, and it totally scratches my itch, especially with a great drummer. You know, if you're just with a great drummer who's got a hi-hat thing and you're playing rhythm with it, I love being in the band. Drummer, bass player, and me, I'm good. Just put anything on top of it you want, you know. Yeah, and, that's uh, where it all starts. That's where it all starts, you know. Thank you so much for doing this again. I really appreciate it. And it's like, you know, it's just fun being around you. It's just like a, an excuse to be able to do that. So <laughs> thank you for falling for it. Um, no, I really appreciate it, and and uh, if I may put in a request, which it might be my favorite song of yours, uh, it is called. I believe it's called "You Just Know." Yeah, it's a ballad, it's kind of love song. It is. Well, you Did know, it's funny about that song. I, I'm 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 glad you know it. I also want to say. I love hanging with you. I mean, your, your love for music, it, it's such an easy hang. I mean, this, this almost isn't a podcast. It's like we're having a cup of coffee or something, and I always enjoy being with you, Andreas, and, th and I, I really appreciate you asking me. Uh, you Just Know was actually when it didn't seem like we were working much, and, 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 and I took the, the, you know, I realized I was moving to North Carolina. I actually wrote You Just Know behind the wheel of the car 
driving out of town without a guitar in my hand. And all the words just came to me. And I actually, I think I was, I think I actually cried while I was writing it. It was like I couldn't believe I was leaving Muscle Shoals. And, and I thought, and I felt it the way I felt David Hood would play bass. You know, just a boom, you know, like a, that's sort of how I feel. And if you want me to play it here, I will. And, uh, sounds a little, uh, Western now, but if David Hood were on it, then Clayton sound like Muscle Shoals. Love my old town, I always will. Guess I thought I'd be there still. I miss the music, miss my friends. Thought that time would never end. But now I'm here and I can't say how I ended up so far away. That voice inside you just says go. So many other voices call I know I've listened to them all And looking back I can't decide If some just took me for a ride But now that all is said and done I believe I heard the one Led me where I had to go You don't know why, but you just know You just know You just know Cause it rings true down in your soul Anytime I feel alone And wonder if I miss the road My heart will tell me that ain't so You don't know why, but you just know Your heart will tell you that ain't so been there right you just know you're people look at you go it's like when I moved to Muscle Shoals I just started getting some sessions like John Boylan called me for the Urban Cowboy soundtrack you know I actually just got a check for like three dollars or something from them showing that in South Africa or something you know something weird but you know I'm on a couple of tracks on the Urban Cowboy so when you're starting to get movie calls and you're knocking it out and and I, you know toured with the pointers you know I was I was in LA but I met Jimmy Johnson and I came down here, and actually, the last record I'd done with Bonnie, there were so many edits in the two tracks, and we took 40 takes of each one, you know, it was a couple of those two, you know, whatever. So I came down here, and my tune was, um, uh, you know, we just run it down. We look at the charts, sort of run it through, okay. Of course, it was a killer band, you know, Roger David had Mac McAnally on acoustic guitar, 
Clayton and Randy and me and Duncan Cameron on guitar. That's who they put together for my demo session down here. And we ran through the song. And at the end, Jimmy goes, felt great to me. Any confessions? I turned to David Hood and I go, you keep first takes around here? And he goes, all the time. <laughs> and so I flew back to LA and I said, I hate LA. My wife hates LA. You know, our kids, we had a little two-year-old twins at the time. We were now 41, you know, but, but uh, we, we hated the traffic. We just, you know, Janet was unhappy out there. And I said, how about Alabama? And she went, great. You know, if there's something for a New England, you know, girl to say, great, let's go to Alabama. And I just told all my friends, I gave them all notice, I'm moving, I'm leaving town. I did all my commitments and in June, two and a half months after I'd done the demo down here, I just drove down here and all my friends were looking at me. I remember thinking back, they were going, you're committing career suicide, what are you doing? You're dry, you know, you're working in LA, that's, and I said, I'm just moving to the land where they keep first takes. And I, I would say things like that to be funny or to be, you know, just grease the wheels. But inside, you don't know why, but you just know that's, that's where I need to make music. That's where I'm going to go make music. Yeah. And, and sometimes, actually, the beauty in something gets lost if you question it too much, too. Oh, yeah. That's true. That's true. And so you just have to say, you know, you just feel it. I just say, I was supposed to be here. Now, look, I got life friends. I have friends, you know, I'm just... You know, I was a little league coach in this town, you know. <laughs> I see kids on the street that I coached in little league, you know, 30 years ago, you know, and they're grown with three kids now, you know. I, I gave, you know, Patterson Hood when he was just here for his dad's, you know, a birthday that was a great show. I just thought that was a wonderful show. And, and Patterson's amazing. And, and, and at 16 one day, he had a broken foot and was just bored and crazy. And he wanted a guitar lesson. He picked me and came to my house. And we just spent hours just me showing him look Patterson go here and you can do this and Patterson said I bet you I've written 20 songs with the chords you showed me that day I said well I'll take half right no I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know we, we joked about it but isn't it great to see the you know he's the next generation and then my son's 10 years younger than him and then another one seven years you know and and the continuum it's here it's this is a place to raise your kids and to and to have re lifelong relationships yeah. and so it was I didn't know all that at the time but here I am you know that first song you demoed that got recorded right yes it did it was amazing because Jerry Wexler was down here with McGuinn Hillman and they were trying to do sort of a rock and roll record on him now you know uh, it's sort of unbirds like and Wayne Perkins was actually the guitar player on it one of my dear buddies you know back in the day they pitched a deal when I first got down here with me and Will Will and Wayne, you know, two guitars, two singers, too much. I mean, I think they had a slogan and everything. And we demo, we demoed five tunes together uh, to pitch a deal. Uh, but the business was just, you know, that early 80s thing where 1,500 studios closed and it was just slow. And, and I just really realized I don't want to go on the road 250 days a year anyway. You know, I was coming home off the road, you know, being gone weeks at a time with Bonnie and my kids were, you know, looking at me like, okay, he looks like me, he's in bed with mom, who is this guy, you know? <laughs> and down here, I just realized if I dig into the studio thing and I became a guy that whether it's country or soul or R&B or rock and roll, I'm the guy, I can at least cut tracks. You know, you may want to go out and get a guitar god to take a solo or two, but I know I can legitimately, I love all this kind of music. I'll legitimately cut tracks with it. 
and I just became that guy, you know, who they could use for a lot of different things, and, and it kept me at home, you know, and, and so that's very important to me, you know, Janet and I had our 42nd anniversary this year, we've got 11 grandkids, and so, you know, life goes on, but the continuum is part of the, the beauty of it, but uh, I got way away on a rabbit trail from McGuinn Hillman, they were down here, Wayne Perkins was playing guitar on it, and they sort of rocked it, and it was Secret Side, it was a song called Secret Side, uh, gosh, I'm trying to remember. It was funny because I played it for Jimmy and he went, well, play me something I don't like. It was just so funny to me. I'll never forget, but it was sort of like, she's your woman, your friend, but time and again, the truth will come and go. You help when you can. Glad you're a man and you love to let her know. But don't give it all. Secret inside of you. Yeah, do all you can do, keep a secret side of you. Some men search in vain through the heartache and pain as far as they can go. But is it wise to uncover the things in your lover that you may not want to know? Give her room to be herself Or she'll wind up being someone else Keep a secret or two A secret side of you Yeah, do all you can do Keep a secret side of you I haven't played that song <laughs> 35, 40 years. Yeah, ago. my next question would have been, do you still play it? But I mean, No, that was the first time. It came to, I had to remember the title. Like you were saying, yeah, the first song. Remember earlier, I sort of hemmed and, yeah, it was the first song I wrote. And I was thinking, what was that? You yeah. know. Do you still uh, remember the Am Amarillo song? <laughs> no, not even close. But I remember it went, you make it easy to love you, Amarillo. I remember the chords, it went, real Poco-ish. I was really, I loved Poco. I loved Buffalo Springfield and I loved Poco. You know, I loved R&B too, but I loved that hippie country. I loved Graham Parsons, you know. I loved Emmy Lou, and, and I just loved American music is what I loved. I loved the band and, and it, and of course I loved Otis. So, you know, the tracks that were behind that, you know, that... I mean, that was just awesome, you know, yeah. then. You know, that kind of just simple. Oh, you know, happy I wouldn't be. Or raining in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of stuff. I just love that kind of simple rhythm, but I also, you know. You know, you know. Well, I haven't done it on anything but a telecaster. You know, but you know what I mean. That kind of, you know. Mm -hmm. 
kind of can't bend these like I can't heavier strings but was a secret site you first cut as a songwriter yeah I think it was I think it was yeah I'd pitched a couple to Bonnie back in the day when I was in her band uh, and she really liked them. She actually, every now and then, she would play one of my demos that I did up in Boston. I was living in Cambridge when I met her, and I did a demo up in Boston. And one morning, I, you know, I brought a cassette of my demos on it. Bonnie was playing it one morning going, I love this. It was like a, a soul song kind of, I can't remember. Oh, rain, rain, rain. Dun, 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 dun. You know, it was like sort of almost a tie, uh, uh, Tyrone Davis kind of a, you know, just soul music kind of a cut. And I had another. I remember that was a lick. Rendezvous, have a party for two. Let's rendezvous. That's what we'll do. You know, it was very, very influenced by that kind of sweet soul music kind of thing. Yeah. I think I pitched that one to Bonnie. Did you ever attempt to record any of those with her? Or no. I mean, by the time you'd hear the songs that she had coming in from all over the world by the greatest writers in the world, I would just go, you know, I don't think this one's going to flow with where we're going, you know. So I bet. Jimmy telling you, you know, play me something I don't like, really gave you the boost of confidence too to maybe pursue that even more. Do yeah. I, or do I got that wrong? You've got it totally right. And I would tell you that, that you know, I mean, I wrote songs in the band I was in when I was 13, you know, but it was whatever. And then I wrote songs all the way through. But Jimmy saying that, Jimmy, I haven't talked nearly enough about Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy really showed me how to get stuff on tape. I think I was, I, I may have already said this in the previous blog, but Jimmy, I think, was looking to sit on the other side of the glass a little bit more, you know what I mean? And I was, I could be his alter ego. You know, I could do, you know, if that's what the track needed or, you know, whatever that, I just, I became his utility infielder. And Jimmy just said, hey, let's, do, let's double that. No, get another guitar for that one. Here, use a thin pick for that. Uh, no, capo that one up. I need another position when you double it. I want to double it on a separate guitar. You know, just little simple things that are now second nature to me that Jimmy just was a real encouragement to, to me. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for Jimmy Johnson. You know, he just really played me something I don't like. And uh, he's been very encouraging to me the whole time. Just Yeah, uh, you, you know, you mentioned about the whole multi-generational thing with you and Patterson and your kids. Yeah, and that goes in the other direction too, with you know Jamie and Reggie Young, and oh yeah, you know whoever came before. I oh, guess yeah. it's just kind we're of, all in a we're in a continuum. We're part of a continuum. Yeah, you're linking a chain, absolutely. and I am, and I I feel that I I, I a lot of the reason people come to Muscle Shoals these days is because that's what they want. The reason we kept doing Johnny Taylor and and Little Milton and Bobby Bland was because we were the guys still in America that played the way they heard it in their souls, the way uh, you know. Well, Denise LaSalle we were talking about her, or uh, I can't believe I just, oh, I, 
can't believe I just drew a blank on her name. She's the nicest person on Malico. Moore. Uh, Dorothy Moore. Dorothy Moore. Uh, you know, these we, we were cutting their tracks uh, because we played like they heard, like the sweet soul thing. It's 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 not that it's a dying art. You hear you hear it out there, but we we were the guys who'd done it all these years, and uh, I think it's why we had a little bit of job security with with those folks kept coming back to Muscle Shoals to do their records because because that's, that's how where, they heard it in their heads. That's where they could find it. Yeah. That's where they could find it was here. And so people still want that. There are still people that come down. I've done records all this year where they'll say, man, I just really want to hear this Muscle Sh I want to hear Muscle Shoals. I want you to take me to Muscle Shoals on this track. There's you, a title for you. Yeah. That's where you find it. Like Carla's record that you produced. Man, that's filled with Muscle Shoals moments. That record's great driving music, by the way. I hadn't listened to it in a while. I popped it in my car on the way to Nashville recently. What a great record, man. I just thoroughly enjoyed it. Carla's great, and, and the tracks just feel like old school, but they're fresh, you know, they're, they're today. It doesn't, the, the technology makes it fresher, but, but they're, uh, they're great. Yeah, man, that's, we still can do it. We can still do it. Yeah, and everybody out there listening, come here, get it, you know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Definitely, they get it. Yeah, they can still get it here, and you know, with, you know, it's just like for me, even you know, not even growing up here, and just never really thinking that it would be an option to even collaborate and meet some of these people, like you know, David or you. It's it's like. You know, we got David Hood. Oh, you yeah. know, we still got David Hood. Isn't that great? And Spooner. And we are the one link. You know, our yeah. generation is the last generation who actually had the direct link there. Right. You know, the next generation, it's probably only going to only gonna be from record, but we can actually watch this guy yeah. sitting across the room. And how incredible is that? I know. It's, I, I just realized, you know, my son Jamie, who became a, a fine bass player, when he was first playing bass, he'd wander down to the studio, you know, after school, and he could look through the glass and watch us cut Bobby Blue Bland tracks, you know, with David Hood on bass. And I started showing him the number chart, and he immediately got it. Like, we'd drive around with the radio on, and I'd go to a country station because it's easier to hear one, four, five. I'd say, does he hear your tonal center there? Okay, just, what's the next chord? And Jamie go, you know, he'd just hold up his fingers, two, four, five, you know, six, that kind of thing, you know, and he developed near. Now Jamie charts for people, you know, they call him in, he number charts. And, but he grew up looking through the glass at the guys his dad was playing with. Is any of your grandkids playing an instrument? They do, man. Uh, several of them are very musical. Uh, Jamie's second boy, uh, his oldest son, is more involved in athletics right now, which is the way Jamie was, more athletics until his late teens. But, uh, but his oldest boy uh, has an electric guitar. Uh, and uh, I don't know if he's been playing a lot lately, but he, you know, he learned some basic stuff and played for the family and played along with us. And his second son is sits down at the piano and writes and sings and makes up his own songs. And you know, he's apparently driven in that direction. And and so yeah, it looks like the next generation. And Nelly's a couple of Nelly's kids. I think there's a cello over there right now, and they're taking lessons. And and uh, you know, so the musical gene goes on. You know, it's interesting with me. I think I told you before, but. You know, my mother wasn't a, a daily influence in my life because she passed when I was five years old. But she had perfect pitch in a music degree from Texas, University of Texas. And so it was in my DNA. Even, and I, I couldn't explain it. I would just feel that if I don't, 
I was so attracted to it. I, if I don't do it, something inside feels like it's just not hitting on all cylinders. Something's broken if I don't make music. I, 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 it's part of our design. And, uh, and you, you know what I mean. It, yeah. it, you, you can't help it. You know, I mean, I joked about it just when I was trying to bend those strings earlier, you know, I mean, I never drop below a certain level of mediocrity at this point. You know, we never just suck anymore. It's like we, we're players. This is what we've been doing all our lives. We can't not do it. Second nature. Yeah, absolutely. I remember I was sitting down one night after one of those things we did down on the coast. I don't remember as a songwriter thing or a Muscle Shoals all-star wing ding or something like that. And I was just sitting on a balcony with Donnie Fritz. And maybe David was there, I think, too. Or Scott. I think it was me, Donnie Fritz, and Scott Boyer. And we are just sitting at this table on a balcony on, like, the 12th floor in Destin or something looking out at the ocean. And Donnie just started to get, look where we are. And it's music. It's music that opened all of these doors. The reason we've been to Japan and and all these states and and we've met so many amazing people it's music it's like we had this thing in us that brought us here we are and i it was so wonderful to to hear donnie sort of waxing philosophical on on that uh on that balcony that night and of course scott chipped in and i chipped in but he broke and said where would we be sitting here if there weren't if we weren't musicians and it was just a a moment you know it it will take you places, but it also bring people together. It brings people together. Like, you know, I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, we'll have done a session and one of the guys will be driving home and whatever and just text you and go, or, or call you and go, man, that's a lot of fun today. You go, man, I always love making music with you. Okay, I'll see you. Bye. Love you. Love you. I can't tell you how. We did one of the Muscle Shoals things at the Marriott, and there were all these Nashville musicians there, and they're all watching us at the end of the night, really, you know, hugging and kissing each other at the end of the night. And they go, I don't personally have this in my life. It's, they're drawn to the, because just like you're saying, it's not like we're just session guys that go to work together. Our kids know each other. <laughs> you know, we've eaten dinner at each other's houses. We, we have a community. Yeah. And that's a special, very, very special thing. It is, and you probably would agree that, like, you know, we would do this for free. What we get paid for is, like, setting up the gear, oh, no getting question. there, practicing, you know. It's just, like, the peripherals, but yeah. it's just a gift to be able to do this. I've said those exact words this week. Somebody says something about playing for money. I said, I've actually never played for money. I've driven to the gig and set up and torn down and driven home for money. <laughs> I've rehearsed for money at times when it got when it, we were beating a dead horse, but the gig itself, there's never a thought I'm getting. You know, you're just when I'm playing music, and I just actually a guy called me long distance day. I was on the phone when I walked in here, and he said, you know, my job gets old at times. I walk in there, I can't believe I'm still doing this. Does that ever get to you? I say, no. Sometimes it's hard getting there and getting home, but when I'm actually doing it, no, it it, it hasn't gotten old yet. It really, even if I'm just cutting a demo on a song that you know there's no hope for it. And you don't want to be judgmental, but we at this point sort of know what might have hope, you know. And you might just be, this person's mortgaged their home to come to Muscle Shoals and make a demo or demo some of their stuff. or make. I never mail it in for those. I play like I'm playing for the biggest star in the world. I get into it. I make music. I, you know what I mean? I want them to leave here and go, that was the most powerful experience I've ever had making music. Going to Muscle Shoals was so positive. Those players didn't condescend to me. They didn't, you know what I mean? They got in there and they cut 
they cut my record like, and actually, you know what's crazy? I know some of my best playing is on records. It'll never be heard somewhere out there. This, some guy's custom records. You know what I mean? And I don't care. I, that's wonderful. That's wonderful that, that they left here going, wow. Because when we're playing, we're still playing. I was talking to Clayton Ivy about that. And you know, Clayton's wonderful. He's, he's got a great personality. He can be like a curmudgeon at times, you know what I mean, on the table. Go, come on, boys, let's get the, you know, yada, da, da, da. But at the end of the day, he goes, isn't this great? You know, isn't this great? We're playing music. He still loves it. Everybody I know still loves it. David still loves it. Spooner still loves it. Spooner was, his mom just passed a couple yeah, of weeks no. ago. We were at his funeral and amazing that the two seats left in the building were right next to Dan Penn. So I had an amazing day just sitting next to one of my heroes. And if you're going to be a songwriter, you ought to know who Dan Penn is. And, uh, and uh, but Spooner was still going over to her place, a nursing home, and playing piano for him weekly. Yep. You know, just just playing music. Just, you know. Here's a guy in the rock, the first sideman ever inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, and he's going to a nursing home to play piano for the old ladies. You know, I mean, that, those are my friends. That's the kind of those are the kind of people I get I get to make music with. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, I I remember at times when I first got down here, just thinking, that's Roger Hawkins in my headphones. That's David Hood. The, that's the guy who played on Respect and Chain, 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 and I'll Take You There. And songs that were my morning music when I was a young, budding musician playing bar gigs, you know? I mean, and I'm in headphones with these guys. It still blows my mind. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here, sharing all your stories. And I guess in your near future, maybe a couple of years, you got uh, fathers and sons and grandkids. Wouldn't that be something? Yeah, actually, Jamie. Every now and then, when we're playing fathers and sons, right after we're done, they set up karaoke down there, and Jamie hangs out and does karaoke. There's a couple of songs that he has worked out with with Asher, one of my grandkids, you know, one of his sons, and they get up there and Asher singing karaoke after we're done, you know, uh, if he doesn't have school the next day, you know, and, and uh, it just blows my mind. We hang around and go. I've got a grandkid singing karaoke in the club I just finished playing in. It's wonderful. Yeah, music never stops. And never will. Never will. Never will. Never will. All right, and tonight you're going to make some more music. Yeah. With yeah. Calvin and all that. That's it, Fathers and Sons tonight. And then I'll get up in the morning, drive up to North Carolina, have Thanksgiving with our daughter. And then I have a gig up there as well. Uh, with my old friends from North Carolina, we'll have fun, and then I'll hop up the next day in big shoes in Nashville on Saturday night, and then home. Yes, yeah. so musical week. Yep. All right. Well, I'll uh, I'll let you go now, That's so great. you can actually <laughs> do what you love. Great. And uh, I'll, we'll be working together again soon. I hope so. It's always a pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> This was the 47th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at the Florence Lauderdale Tourism Visitor Center in Florence, Alabama. If you enjoyed today's episode, please make sure to check out some of our earlier episodes and subscribe to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour podcast on iTunes or listen in on YouTube, 
SoundCloud, TuneIn, or Stitcher. That's it for today. See you next week.